0: This episode of Converge with my guest Buster Benson is sponsored by Fast Track Creative. For more information, check out FastTrackCreative.com. Converge is my chance to connect with creatives who make really interesting things, and when they can, profit from those things, often in ways that might surprise you. My background as a photographer and author gets me in conversations with visual storytellers and writers, but also musicians, actors, business and thought leaders Basically, people who work very hard, not just to make a buck, but also to make a point. The invitation is to understand a little more of the context that surrounds their work and hopefully discover a fresh perspective that might inspire something new around the value you're making in the world. There are entrepreneurs in the world, there are creatives in the world, and there are business people in the world. To get all of that in one person is pretty extraordinary and today's guest is one of those kinds of people. Uh, Buster Benson has made a lot of things in his time. Uh, he's uh, worked out this little project called P-Brain, another th- project called 750words.com that I'm a bit of an addict to. He's also co-founded things like Habit Labs and the Robot Co-op and some clever little uh, Flickr projects like McLeod Residence and a, even a book, Man versus Himself. And he also works at this little place called uh, Twitter. And he does all of this in one little life, despite the fact that he's not even 38 years old yet, at least according to his website. Uh, the guy is uh, remarkable in his productivity, but really I'm more impressed with who he associates with. Uh, he's good friends with a friend of mine named Amit Gupta who started Photo Jojo, and we have the privilege of being in a conversation today that I think you guys are gonna really enjoy, so
1: stay tuned. If I were to give advice, it would be, you know find your hardest problem and start solving it.
0: I'm your host, Dane Sanders, and I want to welcome you to Converge. Buster, welcome to Converge. Thank you. So uh, for people who don't know your background, uh, you have an eclectic past. I mean, you have done a lot of things in a short amount of time. Uh, You've measured everything along the way, apparently, based on everything I'm learning about you. Um, And we're going to talk more about measurement and habit and that sort of thing later, but all of your projects seem to have a thread line. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about your experience in in the online space and uh, what got you to where you are today. And I'm wondering if there is a thread line, how would you articulate it?
1: That's a tough question to start off with. Uh,
0: (laughs) That's how we roll here, man. That's how we roll.
1: Um, Yeah, I guess the thread, I didn't realize that there was a thread until maybe a couple of years ago. It's really just, I've always believe that creativity results when you try to basically solve the most difficult problem that you have. And this inherited this from when I was a, I was a creative writing major in college and I always knew that, you know, the way to write the best fiction was to, you know, find out your, your deepest secret question about the universe and try to create a scenario where the only way out is for the character to solve it. Hmm. And I sort of applied that to, I guess, product development And built a lot of tools that were focused on using data to understand myself better. And that led me through like 43 things. And um, actually, a lot of it was started at Amazon.
0: Did you work at Amazon?
1: I did work at Amazon from like 98 to 2003. On and off over the years. And I guess the part that I've always... The part that, the, the pattern that emerged after a few, after like a decade of this was that I'm trying to solve the problem of how do we change ourselves, mm. and primarily how do I change myself? That's that's sort of been my my unconscious pattern, and now that I realize that that's it, I have doubled down on it and try to try to solve that that question mm. um, at the expense of of everything else. Sometimes the products fail, sometimes the businesses fail, but um, <laughs> still interested in that question.
0: Well, it's it's a rare life that someone gets to pursue one kind of core question for a long period of time through various avenues and projects, and, and maybe that would be helpful for people to get their head around because of your experience both, you know, my context with you is more around these newer projects and learning a little bit of what you do over at Twitter, but maybe you, those early days at Amazon and then now at Twitter, tell people a little bit about what you do in your day-to-day life.
1: Well... I wanted to be an an editor at Amazon. I ended up getting a customer service job, but eventually working my way up, learning Perl and web development and worked on the recommendations team, the personalization and recommendations team, which built things like customers who bought this also bought um, your store. And eventually I got tired of just recommending products to people that, you know, despite how effective it was, it wasn't that interesting to me as a problem. Mm. So I've done both product management and engineering, and have always sort of liked the combination of the two. So startups made a lot of sense to do that for a long time. And then eventually, I wanted to come back to a bigger uh, opportunity like Twitter and moved down to San Francisco last year. And I'm a product manager working on analytics.twitter.com, trying to find ways to um, use Twitter's massive amounts of data to help businesses, professional users, and just like curious people understand themselves
0: better. Hmm. It The uh, the closer I get to people who develop things online, the more I'm struck by the kind of esoteric nature of the questions they're asking. Like I, I have a, a really good friend up in the San Francisco area who's in the middle of a startup, incredibly smart guy. He also went to Berkeley, um, a guy named Dan DiKini. And we, we've we talked, I think now for about five years on, on questions like what is a website? and. Yeah. Uh <laughs> uh most people don't That's a tough one actually. It, it, it's a really <laughs> tough one. And and what's amazing to me is how few people think about these things despite the kind of ubiquitous nature of you know using online tools and you know browsers and apps and all that sort of thing. Uh would you agree that that, that do, or do you have to be a geek to really understand that those kind of bigger questions because really what I'm hearing you describe is human condition questions getting worked out online. So, you know, what motivates people to take action and how can people change? And, you know, those are, those are human things, not just web things. And when people are getting involved in this kind of development kind of stuff, is it the stuff that, that they think about and they just work out with cool apps?
1: Uh, I don't know. Like, like I think it takes a geek's mind to take on a really difficult problem without becoming discouraged. And so to the extent that like solving the question of like, what is a web page is intimidating to lots of people because they feel like, first of all, they should know it already, and second of all, they don't know where to start to figure it out. right? And that same thing is true with behavior change. Like when we ask the question, like, how do we change ourselves, everyone already has an answer to that. They already have anecdotes and case studies and all the data that they think supports this idea. But when you dig into it, you realize that we actually don't know the answer, and it's humbling at first, and mm. um, not being too convinced by the first or second or 100th answer to the question that doesn't pan out and not being too discouraged by that and actually being excited by that is has been a useful trait in my life.
0: Mm. One of the, uh, we have a little kind of community down here. It's, it's actually, it's virtual, so it's all over the place, but it, kind of the hub of it is down in Southern California. And we have a bunch of kind of cultural values that we've begun to name over, over the years. And one of the ones that we talk a lot about is this notion of, um, reality is your best friend. And, uh, what I'm hearing you describe is this kind of notion of, yeah, it might be discouraging to find out that I think I know how to change, but in truth, if I look at the data, i actually don't change very much. That might at first feel like a kind of a bummer, but are you saying that at least that's data, at least you have a starting point or you Mm -hmm. have accurate (laughs) information uh, from which to move?
1: Yeah. I actually had this conversation with a lot of um, fellow peers in the entrepreneurial space of the, the, uh, Importance of admitting the truth, even if it's not what you want to hear, which is very hard for an entrepreneur, because we're constantly trying to spin things positively to everyone else, especially (laughs) investors and customers and that kind of thing. Yeah, and admitting that you don't know something that should be obvious or that you haven't found the answer yet is really tough. But in a way, it's sort of comforting at the same time because you know that everybody else doesn't know the answer either, and they just aren't admitting to it. So it's and it's not as scary once you admit it as it as it seems from the outside.
0: Well, it actually sounds liberating. Like I'm guessing that, the, especially at the highest level, you know, people who are investing, you know, ridiculous amounts of money and talent into big projects, they I'm guessing they've heard it all. Like they're they're not they're not going to be kind of have the wool pulled over their eyes too quickly. And <laughs> what what occurs to me is that maybe it would be a resource to be candid with real problems that haven't been solved by anyone yet.
1: Yeah, yeah, I mean. I I remember telling my investors at my last company that like they were basically funding a uh, research lab, which um, also weeded out about ninety five percent of the people <laughs> to give me more money. But um, you know, funding research is not quite as uh, promising as funding the answer. And a lot of people do claim to have the answer. Hmm. And if if you're going to give someone money and expect them to become you know a hundred million dollar company or a billion dollar company. Um, you you sort of need them to have the answer. Right, so right. it goes both ways.
0: Yeah, I could see that. I could see that. Well, well, this this uh, podcast, as you know, is about the convergence of business and creativity. And the listeners, uh, most of them are making things uh, and they're trying to make some kind of profit from it or, or some kind of value. So it might not be money necessarily, but they could be making a point, some kind of value, whatever's important to them based on what they're making. And, and you've been at that kind of a task for a long time whether call it an entrepreneur, call it a developer, call it a whatever. Uh, I'm curious if you could go back to your, uh, your 27.78 year self uh-huh. and uh, give some advice. Uh, what would you want to say to that guy?
1: 27. Um, I would probably, I, I've talked to a lot of entrepreneurs uh, at various stages and, one of the things that I have the hardest time convincing them of is that they don't need to see uh, startups or business building or product building as a uh, checklist. Um, people are so excited about you know just owning a business, filling out the paperwork, then raising money, and then hiring employees and like the process part of it. That I think a lot of people make those decisions for the wrong reasons. And if if I were to give advice, it would be you know find your hardest problem. And start solving it. And until you make progress, until you ha- ha- until you can solve it for one person, you don't need to raise money, hmm. uh, and <laughs> and you don't need to hire anyone. So, um, and I think that people don't spend enough time at that at that stage of the company. It's actually the most, at least for me, it's the most fulfilling stage of the company too, where the the clock's not ticking, uh, people's livelihoods aren't in your hands, um, and you are probably burning very little cash and that kind of thing. So. Um, Spend more time there, and then don't believe your own hype as you you go out and try to raise money.
0: Yeah, that's so striking, because we just had a a couple guests on from a website called These Are Things, these designers from the Midwest named Jen and Omar, and they make some really cool art, and uh, we talked a lot about this notion of finding a pure creative space. And when I hear you describe that moment of no pressure for payroll and no pressure to to kind of put together a a pitch deck for investors where you're really just creating a solution to a problem. Mm -hmm. Is that close to what they're talking about? Do you think that, that pure for you,
1: that pure creative creative? Absolutely. Yeah. It's like you, nothing between you and the problem you're trying to solve. And maybe you have to find, depending on how, you know, how, what the problem is, you might need to convince people to help you a little bit, but like you don't need to do that simply to become a business, simply to feel like you're an opp- a CEO or whatever it is that you are. Um, I mean, it's tempting. Of course, I, I did that many times for that for that reason. So it's easier for me to say it after sure. going through it, to convince someone else.
0: Well, and talk a little bit more about that. Like, what do you think motivates people to, to want to have the props of, you know, legitimacy?
1: I think it's experience. Like, there's a lot of things that we do. I might be biased. Like, one of my, my first startup was called 43 Things, where it's about making a list of life goals and then, you know, trying to check them off the list. Um, I sort of see a lot of things as like worth doing simply because they are experiences and like, that's the firsthand, you know, sort of currency of our lives. So it's, it's fun to to try new things and, and do that. So I think that's a big driver. Everyone says fake it till you make it. And that while that is good advice, sometimes I think it might force people to go a little bit too fast um, other times.
0: Well, as you know, uh, I'm a fan of 750words.com. I think it's a, a remarkably elegant uh, and simple solution, the kind of thing that I hit myself in the head and go, really? Like, why, why didn't I think of a clever project like this? Um, and I'm sure you have that experience in other places, too. But what a lot of our audience, if they've been around me f- for any time in the last half a year, they've heard me talk about seven fifty words a lot. And I'm curious, what what motivated you to create that particular, like, what what problem were you trying to solve with that application?
1: That one um, it was entirely about getting things out of my head, right? Like, um, as a creative writer, I, I've always um, I've always been a journaler, and I've always been equally paranoid about other people finding my journals. And I always hated the fact that I had to censor myself in my journals. So I wanted to create a tool that solved that problem for me, where I could write uncensored, unfiltered brain dumps of stuff, and not fear that it was going to be seen by anyone else, and not fear that it was going to accidentally, you know, post publicly in some way. Um, and I, I knew that that, at least in my own personal life, like, would always provide value because. When, every time I am stuck on something, if I just write it out and I get it onto paper, like I work through it and I get to the end, I'm like, "Wow, you know, that was worth 15 minutes of my day to to solve that." So that's why I built it. And I, I remember I, I just looked at my old first blog post about it in 2009, where I was like, "Hey, I thought of this idea three days ago. Here's the first version of it." And it was really just like a couple of days of work and something that I, I was going to use for my own self, my own writing.
0: Do you well, and I should give context for folks if you're not familiar with it, you should be. You should go over to 750words.com, the numbers and then the words.com, and uh, and check it out. And uh, it's basically a, a kind of a gamification of writing, or at least maybe gamification got added later. I'm not sure of the order, but you go on and you write anonymously. People can't read your posts, uh, but you get credit for it socially, so other uh, people can see whether you wrote today and if you crossed the 750 word threshold. And of course that's a nod to the whole artist's way idea of daily pages or morning pages of, you know, getting three pages out early uh, or as often as you can. Is there any other piece to that that I'm missing that I should make sure people know about?
1: Um, no, it's really just, yeah, it's, it's about, it's definitely inspired by the artist's way. Um, yeah, write three pages a day and you get linguistic analysis on it and, earn badges and streaks. Uh, the, the gamification was part of it from the begin, beginning. I ran out of the ability to make badges quite a while ago. So <laughs> I stuck with the same badges.
0: <laughs> well, yeah. So so uh, I'm proud to acknowledge uh, uh, I crossed 100,000 words in oh, wow. 80, 89 days. And for me, that's a oh. big deal. I'm not a that prolific of a writer. Um, but. Um it was slow and steady. What was shocking to me, but I got the um what was your badge that I got for a hundred thousand words? It was these flock of seagulls. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh I'm just amazed at how um meaningless those little badges are, but how much meaning I put on them. Uh exactly.
1: (laughs) That's the whole point. Yeah. The more meaningless the badge, like the more they can actually represent the intrinsic value. That's why I, I don't care too much about not having a thousand day in a row badge because, you know, obviously if you're at a thousand days in a row, uh, you're not really in in need of motivation <laughs> externally <laughs> at least. Yeah.
0: Well, well, and I want to talk, the other part about the site that I'm really intrigued by is what, what did you call it? The, the language um, assessment or filter or kind of it, it, yeah. it, yeah. it reads through my words and it, gives me feedback uniquely no one else can see anything about it like one of the pieces that i'm really struck by is the rating you give like (laughs) my my uh, posts get rated you know gpg and i read in i read in the thread in the um in the community there where somebody tried to to try to get a like an x rating or an nc17 rating and they 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 were just foul to themselves (laughs) (laughs) and they just couldn't manage to get it over the you know tipping point um Talk a little bit about that whole meta uh, approach to self-analysis.
1: Yeah, well, considering that it's um, private and that no one's ever going to read it, I wanted to create some kind of artifact that could be shared and publicly. And um, I was—I've always been obsessed with linguistic analysis and um, things like Markov chains and just like trying to uh, parse emotional content or thematic content. And so I gathered a bunch of random dictionaries that were out there at the time. One of them is called the regressive imagery dictionary, which is uh, largely uh, inspired by Freudian psychology Um, thing. They'll pull out things like you have an Icarus syndrome or like, Hmm. you know, just uh, crazy things like that. And then there's another one that's called the linguistic inquiry and word count, uh, which is a terrible name for a really amazing sort of lightweight language parser that just has words and weights Hmm. and you run it through, you just count up all the words and it pulls out things like present tense, past tense, um, first person, second person, third person, um, different senses. What else is there? And then like sexual content uh, violence, things like that. And so I, I sort of dissected them all and, uh, Frankenstein them into what I, uh, ended up using, you know, I always tell people it's more entertainment than accurate like parsing language isn't notoriously difficult. You can't really do it unless you have an AI, but until then it's, it's fun to sort of create a little randomness and give people feedback on their words.
0: Right. So when you say, AI, you mean artificial intelligence? Yeah. Yeah. So, so you're basically, so it's going through and it's, it's offering, it's almost like, um, it, it sounds as if you're describing it more like, um, neutral Socratic questions. Like, you know, the, based on the data, these are the, this is the tense, or these are the emotions, or this is what you're kind of have reflected back. I know for me, as someone who looks through that data about the words that I write, I find myself in a conversation with myself, like, oh, you know, do I feel affectionate today? You know, was I thinking about family? Um, Mm -hmm. Those kinds of dynamics. Uh, But what Mm -hmm. I'm hearing you say is, is it's not, it's not rigidly true. It's just, it's just feedback for me to consider.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's it's loosely, I mean it's it's completely logical and it's in its uh, sure um, reflection, but the logic is is entirely misinterpretable. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, and what I the other thing that's intriguing to me, and this isn't just on on this site, but in a lot of your work, it seems like it's important for you for that privacy is a big deal that people have a space somewhere online that's just for them. Is that a fair interpretation?
1: Um I have a weird relationship with privacy and publicity like I like I I I think the common thread there is that I I want I'm trying to instill a, a, a mental state like I want people to conduct on 150 words and feel safe and that requires in this case complete obfuscation of the words and uh hmm. there's having no chance at all of ever making it public so you know, it, it creates this feeling of like, oh, I don't have to be afraid that someone's going to read this, and so therefore I can just write. Um, and so everything about that side is entirely about giving that feeling. In other places, some of the the emotion might be um, accountability or motivation. In which case, like maybe everything is public. So I don't know. I don't. I don't think privacy is is one of my core passions. It's just that in this particular case it's a very important that people have privacy. Mm-hmm.
0: Like it's in- instrumental to some other yeah. end. Yeah. yeah. And is that true of Pbrain? In fact, actually, why don't you explain what Pbrain is
1: for folks? Pbrain is, it's basically like Twitter, except entirely private also. So I guess Pbrain is you text a number, anything and it will parse out hashtags and names and, um, give you stats based on how often you, you leave notes and stuff like that. It's, it's sort of like the 750 words over SMS it's much more about record keeping and maybe thought capturing so that you can capture it in the moment rather than sitting down once a day and, and writing it all out.
0: Yeah. So it's very nimble. You can do it in the fly.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And everyone's got their SMS, you know, app, you know, on, on the, in their dock or at least on their home screen of their phone. So it's way easier to just use that as the input device rather than creating an app and having people have to open it and find it and create an account and all that kind of stuff. So, so, so as you have
0: kind of walked uh, your journey through this, you know, all this from the early days, all the way to stuff you're doing currently, and I, I can actually ask you a question in a minute about how you've divvied your life up. My guess is you've seen a lot. You've seen kind of trends and fads, you know, booms and busts, what the world thinks is going to be popular and, and the world gets surprised. And I, based on that, I, I guess I'm wondering if you have an example of your... You know, we don't have to throw anyone on the bus, but you can feel free. Uh, <laughs> uh What What is one kind of surprise that you've noticed in the virtual space in the last I don't know, say five five years or so? And what What is one thing that you saw coming that you th- everyone thought was going to be awesome, and you you're like, yeah, I knew from the beginning it was doomed.
1: Knew from the beginning it was doomed.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh man. Um, well, some of those are, the doomed ones are easy, like Zynga and, uh, Groupon and those kinds of things. Like I knew that that was not going to work.
0: I mean, now now why explain why?
1: Um, because their value proposition was, um, relied on taking advantage of, of an impulse that people didn't want. As soon as they adapted to the impulse and got bored with it, you know, people move on, move on. As far as surprises of things that did succeed, I mean, I was—I've been a believer in Twitter since the very beginning. What else is there? <laughs>
0: <laughs> From the guy who works at Twitter.
1: Well, you know, part of the, yeah. <laughs> but my user—I was the uh, my user ID on Twitter is like 2,000, so I was like, I, was, I signed up almost on day one.
0: Well, clearly, sleep. who who gets at Buster? Come on, that's not cool. That's you know, I I, I I when I heard that you had that, I was like, okay, so either he was like. User number seven, or he, uh, he got a job there and like worked some deal where they offed somebody out uh, you know in the real <laughs> world and, and stole his
1: account. <laughs> it's sort of both Cause like, <laughs> um, actually when I the guy that owned Buster also worked at Twitter, and the first day I was there I was like you gotta give me that handle, because it wasn't his real name, huh. it was just like his pseudonym for uh, user support, and so I forced him to give it to me. <laughs> <laughs> so even though I was early, I I didn't that wasn't I didn't ha- I didn't have it the whole time.
0: That's great. Yeah. So um, so so say more about. I I want to get back to the original question. Yeah. So so with Twitter was something that you believed in at the beginning. Did you think it would go this far?
1: Yeah. I mean, I I, I think so. I I mean, I I feel like my DNA was forged in the in like Web 2.0 as far as Web products go where yeah. I mean, when everybody had good intentions and everybody knew each other and everybody was just trying to make the world a better place and focusing on open and public and, and shared and, you know, catering to objectives rather than trying to take advantage of people. Um, and there's a few people in that era, like Ed Williams, of course, um, started blogger and he started Twitter and I was running medium is one of my uh, sort of heroes in that space. So is Stuart Butterfield, who started Flickr. And there's a whole bunch of people that are just doing really interesting things. Some of them didn't build $15 billion companies, but still built really amazing things. Like Matt Howey built Metafilter. Yeah, there's just a bunch of them out there. And I think that anything that that crew builds with that philosophy, I I back 100%. I don't necessarily, I don't really care if they become gigantic things, but they make the world better in some way. So I always root for them.
0: Who are some um, up-and-comers that you go? Oh, I, I think there's some real talent there. Anyone on the on the landscape who maybe kind of because I, I think what I'm hearing and what you're identifying is it isn't just a skill set; it's kind of a, a value set and the skills to pull off some of these things. Because because I mean, even Twitter is a great example. I remember the early days; uh, people just struggled to explain what Twitter was, and you know, you guys who were early adopters, it, it was just kind of native, like of course I'm telling people what I'm doing. Like,
1: (laughs) you know, well, yeah, uh, yeah, true. We were definitely early adopters and oversharers of our lives and people now there's, there's a lot of people. I mean, like I don't, I don't probably spend as much time at hackathons and, and incubators as as I did before, but, um, you know, I really like what Tony Sobelbine is doing with Lyft. There's lots of people. I mean, everything that quantified self movement sort of brings out like Ernesto Ramirez and Gary Wolf. I like everything that they do. And again, I, I don't necessarily think that all of these will become gigantic things. I just think that the trends that they represent are trends that will in the long run win out over the other ones.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Do you ever look because of guys like Tony and Lyft, do you ever look at them? And uh, and if you guys don't know Lyft, check out Lyft.do. When you think of those kinds of projects uh, again, they're pretty lightweight uh, they seem to be kind of a big metaphor, you know, it isn't a distant, it feels like a cousin to what some, a lot of the stuff that you've done, where you're, you're playing with motivations and trying to encourage people to do the things that they say they want to do, but aren't doing. Do you ever look at a project like that and go, yeah, I like either contribute, like, I think I contributed to that or I was, I was part of that project. Or do you ever go like, oh, that jerk, he still my huh. idea.
1: <laughs> Definitely not the latter. Um. I mean, I, I think that anything, anybody that is passionate enough to go spend their life trying to build tools like this is totally, has 100% license to use anything that I might have might have tried at one point. Um, just, I hope they do it better than I did.
0: One question I want to talk about, and this relates to a lot of our listeners, is just folks who are trying to design their life. So. Um, As I understand your world, you know, you, you are making really cool things at Twitter and you also, as you have time, you're doing these side projects, you're in, you're in the, the developer community at a pretty, you know, high level. You've seen a lot of things. How important is it for you to be intentional with, you know, having a, a job with benefits and still freeing yourself up for a percentage of your time to do other projects is and, and I should probably double check is my assumptions are they close to right in terms of how you have set things up
1: yeah I mean I when I when I joined Twitter they definitely gave me I made it I made sure to be upfront about the fact that I would have side projects but um I don't know I, I think it's a cycle I go between putting everything on the line and getting really stressed out and then you know play, hedging my bets a little bit and and, and learning, spending more time learning from other people, um, and focusing on solving bigger problems and different ones. So I think it's just, a, it goes back and forth. Um, right now I'm just loving what I'm doing. So I have no reason to, to change it at all, but yeah, it's, I think you should just go back and forth and try not to burn out because I spent 15 years just trying to make my minimum number of dollars that I needed to, to pay the bills. Mm. Um, and going in debt and, you know, having a kid with no health insurance was stressful. And it's also like working 80 hours a week is, is tough when you have a, a one-year-old. So things like that, trade-offs. But, you know, overall, like, I think there's more than enough time in the data. like, if you just have one problem you're trying to solve and you have 80 years of your life to try to solve it, then you don't have to be in a rush to, to get there. Just stay on the right track. <laughs> and it's much more important that I'm continuing to think about this in 10 years than that I you know, launch something next month.
0: This was episode 015 of Converge, the business of creativity podcast. FastTrackCreative.com is our home where you'll find past episodes, our Better Together creativity community, and a ton of other resources for artists looking to make a difference with their creations. Music today provided by triplescoopmusic.com. Sound as good as you look. And a special thanks to Buster for being with us. Please visit his website at busterbenson.com. As usual, I want to thank you for spreading the word about the show. When you leave questions and comments on the site and rate us on places like iTunes, we recognize that you caring to do that is a big deal, and we are grateful. That's it for now. I'm Dan Sanders, and I'll see you here next time.